trust in your promise. One more time. I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to wait on you. I've tasted your goodness. I trust in your Calm the rain. 
crush the enemy. I won't move until you speak. You break the walls apart. You heal the wounded heart. You've been there from the start. I won't move until you speak. You call the raging sea. You crush the enemy. You set the broken one more until you speak You break the world apart You heal the wounded heart You've been there from the start I won't move until you speak You calm the raging sea You crush the enemy You set the broken free I won't move Amen. Come on, somebody. Let's bless Jesus in this place this morning. Come on, let's lift up a high praise to the Lord this morning. I'm going to come down here and do it with you. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, lift up your worship. Come on, lift up your worship. Come on, lift up your worship. Come on, lift up your
It's almost like you guys love him in this place. My goodness. Everybody put your hands together and bless Jesus in this place. Goodness gracious. Amen. Hey, boy. Oh, man. Isn't he great? He's better than you think. And I think, I think it was Bill Johnson I heard say years ago, you have permission to try to exaggerate on the goodness of God. <laughs> Because you can't exaggerate his goodness. He's that good. Just when you think you've got him all figured out, he blows your mind. In fact, the Bible says he's one that does exceeding abundantly above all that, not just more, but above from a different dimension, all that you could ask or even think. That's how good he is. So, amen. You crazy people in here. Goodness. It's almost like you believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And it's almost like you believe that you don't want to just make heaven your home, but you want to make your home like heaven. It's almost like you believe that he's actually here with us right now. It's almost as if you believe that us coming together is not giving him worship, but our life is a lifestyle of worship. And this is just an expression of our lifestyle. It's almost like you believe that in an atmosphere like this, people can be healed from sickness. It's almost like you believe in an atmosphere like this, brokenness can be restored. It's almost like you're starting to believe that he can take ashes and bring beauty from it. That he can take brokenness and bring wholeness. My God, that he can take... With one breath, he can take dead things and bring them back to life. With one word. I had... I had breakfast with a, a new friend in the church, and three or four times in our conversation, he said, I'm filled with hope. Other things he said, but I'm filled with hope. And I learned something that I probably should have already known, but it came to my mind. Man, hope is contagious, and joy is contagious. And man, I mean, it set me on a, it set me on a, on a trajectory for the rest of the day where I was just so grateful. I'm, I try to live a lifestyle of gratefulness, but I was thinking, man, I'm filled with hope too. I'm filled with joy too because the earth, Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. And so I was also filled with hope and joy. And I hope today uh, that as you experience this presence, as you experience uh, this moment, uh, that it would be uh, an epoch, a, a, a Kairos moment for you, a, a life-changing experience that when you leave here, what happens here translates to out there. Amen. So, thank you, Lord. Let's, let's, let's present our tithe and offering. Let's do that, and I want to move on into the service. But, Father, we thank you now for the opportunity to give, and we know that what we give is not a debt that we owe, but it's a seed that we sow, and we believe that good seed sown into good soil brings good fruit. 
We believe that we're not afraid of a curse for giving, but we certainly are joining with you in finance and other ways with and expect a blessing. I pray that everyone that's able to sow because you give seed to farmers, that everyone that can sow, Lord, with time, talent, or treasure or otherwise into the ministry, Lord, that it would be returned unto them, blessings upon them, 30, 60, and 100-fold in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Come on up to the front and place your gift there in the basket. You can take your phone. I had one. I don't know what I did with it. That's dangerous. There we go. If, you, if you'd like to give by card, you can pull out your phone and text the amount you would like to give to the number 84321. And it'll run you through some steps. Or you can log on to our website, which I encourage you to do, truevinestatesville.org. TrueVineStatesville.org. Um, hope is the fuel of faith, Robin said. She, she, she grabbed me. When Mother Johnson grabs your arm, you stop what you're doing. Jesus went into a town called Nain one day, and the Bible says, he walked up to the, to the coffin, the, the beer, the King James says, when they, and as soon as he touched it, they, they froze. When Robin touches my arm, I freeze. And she said, hope is the fuel of faith. Is that right? Love it. So, um, thanks everybody for being here this morning. We have a special treat for you today. Um, many years ago, probably nine, a little over nine years ago now, maybe nine and a half, ten years ago, uh, we met Randall Worley, who we're going to introduce him as Randall Worley, but he won't do this for himself, and I know there are many of you. In fact, I would say at least 15 or 20 of you that have not had the privilege to hear him before. Randall Worley is Dr. Randall Worley. He's a, he's a writer. He's got several books out. I don't know if he has any materials with him, but he, he, you can get them by, via his website um, if you want to do that, and we'll throw it up on the screen in a minute. But he has traveled the world preaching the gospel of the kingdom for 40-plus years, right? 40-plus years? 43 years. 43 years. That's a wonderful number. That's exactly how many years I've been alive. So... He probably preached the gospel the first time, and, and, and mom and dad got together, and boom, here's Joshua. 43 years preaching the gospel. He's, he's preached uh, to tens of thousands. He's preached at some of the most renowned uh, places. If I mention them, you would know them well by name. Uh, he's honored and adored by so many because he brings, uh, for me, for me, I, I, I love the word. I love to study. I love the Lord. And so, of course, I love his word, which we believe Jesus is the word of God. And we love the Bible, which is the word about the word. But um, he, he, the way that he, he sheds new light and brings new perspective uh, to sometimes things that we've quoted and read for many, many, many years and is able to bring perspective, it's just, it's always, it just fascinates me. He's my favorite speaker that comes to our church. And it's not just because he's a good speaker. The first time that I met Randall, uh, that we sat down together, he said, he looked at me and said, I just want you to know I don't want to be your father or daddy. I'm not into that. I just want to be your friend. You had a good dad. You don't need another one, which is the most powerful thing he could have said to me, especially in that moment because it was in that thing when everybody wanted you know, spiritual sons, which really means I want to get in your pocket and have control of your life, and he's never done that. In fact, in all the years that he's been coming here, not that I can remember has he ever said, I'd like to get this much money, ever, ever, ever. In fact, most of the time he insists, if I come to town, I just would like to go out to dinner and see how things are going. If you want me to speak, whatever, but I don't need to do that. He actually has done that before. And so without any further ado, I'd like for us all to stand and make welcome to the platform. Children's Church, you're going to stay in here and enjoy. Joy, Randall Worley. There's a cold water there. Would you like a would you like a room okay. Good morning. Good morning. 
I'm just still basking in the in the the sweet presence of the Lord that uh, you guys brought us into in the worship. Okay. Go ahead and take care of your housekeeping. That's fine. As I was saying, I always enjoy the worship here and um, count it a real privilege to be in relationship with Josh, Elizabeth, the entire team here, Barbara, all these years. So uh, before I get started this morning, I want to make you aware of something. Uh, Next month, my wife and I are going to be hosting uh, a gathering of five couples from different parts of the country. We're bringing them to our area, of the Promised Land, which is also known as Myrtle Beach. <laughs> and um, for three days of gathering, it's going to be a time just of encouragement, edification, uh, nurturing relationships. And um, Josh and Elizabeth so graciously accepted my invitation to come, really looking forward to it. So uh, for so many reasons, especially Elizabeth, that you get some time with my wife. And you'll understand me far better when you meet her. And so uh, I, I would just, and I also want you to know that this is something that we're underwriting, this uh, There's no cost to the attendees whatsoever. We felt to make this investment, um, we have a beautiful... Did I send you the link, Josh? Oh, okay. I'm I'm behind in my duties then. Uh, Okay. Well, we have... We've been able to secure a beautiful five-bedroom, five-bathroom condo on the ocean, right on the ocean and uh, with balconies overlooking the surf. And it's just going to be a time of refreshing. And so, as I was saying, this is something that we feel like is an investment. There's no registration whatsoever. If you'd like to bless them with their expenses, uh, that, that would be great. But I'm really looking forward to that. And you meeting some of my uh, other friends. I do have friends, believe it or not. Uh, far more than you may realize. So again, I I want you, if you will, to turn with me. My text is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. Isaiah in chapter 45. And I'll join you there in a moment. There's seven verses there that we want to consider, as well as another text taken from the book of Isaiah. But before we get started, I I just have some things that I want to get off my chest. And so don't let that be concerning to you. But I really do believe it's an insult to God when we are influenced or swayed more by our leaders and what they do or they don't do. I, I think it's an affront to God. Before there ever was a democracy that allowed us to elect those that would be our voice. God had a voice. I said God had a voice. Theocracy is a word maybe that you might not be familiar with, but it really is 
the true government, the government of the creator, the ruler of the universe who existed before men feebly began to interpret God's intentions and put it in their constitutions. So why is it that so many people today are losing their minds because it seems our leaders are losing theirs? It reminds me of what the psalmist says in Psalm 2, and I love, I believe this is the Passion Translations. How dare the nations plan a rebellion? Their foolish plots are futile. Look at how the power brokers of the world rise up to hold their summits as rulers scheme and confer together against Yahweh and his anointed king, saying, let's come together and break away from the creator once and for all. Let's cast off these controlling chains of God and his Christ. God is enthroned and merely laughs at them. I'm going to enjoy myself with or without you, okay? I just want to let you know that. Um, God is enthroned. He's the sovereign one who mocks at their madness. I mean, I know, I understand very well that most of us right now are questioning the old saying, maybe you've heard it, that every storm runs out of rain just like every dark night turns into day. Maybe you're questioning that, as I have for some time now. Uh, You probably remember, maybe more so the older people here, it was President Roosevelt that was the one who was responsible for coining the phrase, the only thing that we have to fear is fear itself. I mean, that is a phrase that he is certainly known for. But... I think even though he was right in the context in which he said it because there was the impending depression, the imploding of the economy, that I beg to differ with Roosevelt. The only thing that we have to fear is fear itself. I I understand how paralyzed they were back in those days because of what was on the horizon, what appeared to be the total collapse of the American economy. I think really what we need to realize is that what is happening to us in this apocalyptic moment, this time of unveiling, is God is allowing us to see what we have had faith in. He's helping us to understand that we shouldn't fear fear itself, but we should walk in reverence, not being terrified of God, But understanding that with all of men's schemes and all of men's uh, attempts to try to bail out or to undergird this whole system that we have enjoyed for so long now, that God still sits sovereignly ruling the universe. I mean, oddly enough... We tend to prefer a satisfying untruth, a satisfying untruth, because it seems that a satisfying untruth is more palatable than a unsatisfying truth. I know that's a play on words, but I think it's true when we look at the way that the media has shaped our psyche. We would rather, we're satisfied more 
by an untruth than we are an unsatisfying truth. So with that said, I want to read my text taken from Isaiah chapter 45, beginning with verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue the nations before him and to loose the belts of kings and open doors before him, the gates may not be closed, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hoards in the secret places, or one translation says hidden riches in the secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you did not know me. I am the Lord, and there is none other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. Now, these next verses can be somewhat problematic and even paradoxical. I am the Lord, and there is none other. Verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Now, very quickly, go over to chapter 60 of the book of Isaiah to a passage that has been, in my opinion, almost worn smooth with familiarity, but I still believe that it is as relevant as it was when it was first given from the lips of Isaiah. Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise and shine, for the light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. But what's the context of this arising. It's a contrast of context. What is the context of this arising? For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising." Now, some of you probably, what I'm getting ready to say, are unfamiliar with, and that's all right. Don't let that trouble you because, unfortunately, back there in my text in Isaiah chapter 45, when we make reference to Cyrus, there are some that have bought into this convoluted idea that was proposed even in our last election cycle concerning the identity prophetically of who Cyrus is. I don't believe that Cyrus is to be compared to some conservative political candidate that God was supposedly raising up to save democracy. And if that's what you believe, you're entitled to that view. If everybody's saying the same thing, then somebody obviously is not thinking. So you're entitled to that opinion if that's what you think, but I don't think this is what 
Isaiah was prophesying because the context of this particular prophecy came during the Babylonian captivity. The people of God, Israel, had been taken away, hundreds of miles away into a foreign land. Everything was foreign to them, not only the culture itself and the language, the surroundings, everything was completely foreign and strange to their sight. Everything about that context was extremely confusing. This is where we apply the word exile. They are in exile. I wonder sometimes, especially these days, when I look around at where I live and the climate in which I'm navigating, if I'm not, to some degree, in exile. Because things don't look like they used to. The sounds are not the same as they used to be. The language has, is changing. Are, are you catching my drift here? It almost seems like I, myself, and maybe you felt the same way, are in this existential exile. Where did all this come from? Why is all of this happening? Why has God allowed this? And it leads to so many unanswered questions. I think what we read in Isaiah 45 echoes, and you probably are familiar with this particular psalm as well as you are, Psalm 23. Uh, Psalm 137 echoes this kinds of disillusionment that they were experienced because it captures the pulse of the people during that time. He says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, and we remembered Zion. Our willows there we hung on the lyres, for there we hung up on the lyres. For there our captors required us of, of songs and tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. I, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. I think all of that, if you are really listening, if you're leaning in, really leaning in, all of that is as relevant as if it were written just this past week. I mean, I know here in the West, here in America, you know, that we still are holding tenaciously to our ideals, but it seems that those things are becoming foreign to us, right? That we've been taken captive into exile. Now, lest you think that this teaching has a negative spin to it, let me encourage you and let you know that we're going to gain altitude here in just a few minutes. All right? But before we do, I want you to see that at the heart of what I want to talk about is what is found in verse 3 as well as in verse 7. I will give you the treasures of the darkness. 
It's important to note that he didn't say, I'll give you treasures, the treasures in the darkness, but I'll give you the treasures of the darkness. And that again, he also says that it is God that forms the light and he creates the darkness. Now, I'm sure as most of you have been taught all of your life that darkness primarily in Scripture is associated with evil. It's associated with the diabolical. It's associated with deception. Correct? When you hear the word darkness, the connotation is something that is evil, something that is to be avoided. There's at least a hundred references to darkness in Scripture, but I think the mistake that we make is understanding that there is another kind of darkness that God is inviting us into. Now, I know that does not fit our paradigm. I know that, doesn't under, that does not fit our way of understanding because darkness, you know, unanimously for most people is bad news. But that's not the whole story about darkness. Again, I won't assume anything, but when you go to the opening of Scripture, when you go to the Genesis, the beginning of all this, you probably remember that God does something that turns our way of seeing upside down because each and every creative day starts not in the morning but in the evening. And the evening and the morning, say that, and the evening and the morning were the first day and so on throughout each one of those creative days. First the evening followed by the morning. Not the rhythm that we are most familiar with, that the morning comes first followed by the evening. So really what he is implying to us here, maybe we missed it. Maybe it was between the margins. Maybe it was between the sentences and between the lines. The inference here is that a new day Truly, a new day does not begin at sunrise, but it begins at sunset. It's a total reversal in our logic, in, it. in the Jewish way of thinking. Each day, new day, begins with darkness, not with the rising of the sun. I hope you're connecting the dots because I have this sense that the darker things become, it is an indication to us that we are entering truly a new day. Each new day starts with the loss of light, not the coming of light. I hope you're encouraged by that. As I was writing that last night, it was encouraging to me because I began to see what it was that the prophet was so profoundly trying to say. I know it's counterintuitive, but it is the dark nights that lead us to new dawns. I want to be very emphatic when I say this, that all spiritual progress takes us from knowing to unknowing to new knowing. And I don't want for that, you know, just like sound like some clever cliche that I have fashioned. No, it's really true. 
when we go back and look at the rhythms of creation in Genesis, the evening and the morning, the evening and the morning, it is to reveal to us that he is forever taking us from the known to the unknown to something that is newly known. It ought to be encouraging even to you on a practical level. All spiritual progress comes that way. You know, not all those people that consider themselves quick studies have an advantage over the rest of us who are slow learners. Am I helping anybody with that? I mean, because I believe that learning involves unlearning, and paradoxically, unlearning itself is probably the highest form of learning. It probably is the highest form of learning. Because I've come to the conclusion after all these years that there are many things that I have come to understand too soon. Because, can I just be very authentic with you here? I I always am, whether it appears that way or not. I have a a propensity to want to be controlling. There it is, I said. (laughs) He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. I like to know outcomes. I like to know how long it's going to take. Anybody else? I've even come through this long period of time just in the last few months where everybody is, you know, the default setting for these uncertain times is Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. And that's where people usually say, God's got this. God is in control. And I challenge that idea because God is not in control in the way that you would like for him to be in control. You see, God, even though he is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, he is all the omnis, right? He is not insecure in feeling this need to micromanage everything that happens on this planet. The problem, again, comes into play whenever things are troubling to me and uh, are defying logic. The problem comes in when I say, well, God's got this. God's in control. Well, maybe he's not. Man, that's offensive to people to suggest that. I can't hardly see your faces, but I can feel it coming back at me. I felt you volley that idea back at me. See, you do understand that most of the time we are offended and we become defensive to ideas that are really trying to help us to make spiritual progress. I don't want to stay there too long, but maybe I have addressed it in previous visits. That Romans 8.28 passage, this default setting for most believers, God is in control, for we know all things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose is taken grossly out of context because you have to go back to about verse 15 to understand fully what Paul was saying. For I consider not the sufferings of this present time to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Then he goes on and talks 
in great eloquent terms about how all of creation is groaning and in travail, and we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting in earnest expectation for the manifestation of the sons of God. So don't play the Romans 8.28 card out of context. Understand that this that we are going through, we can grow through instead of just going through it. We can understand that this present darkness may not all be emanating from Capitol Hill. May I bring you back again to verse 7. I form light and I create darkness. That's troubling, isn't it? The darkness that he's talking about here is a totally different type of darkness. It's not deceptive. It's not diabolical. But it is darkness all the same. This gives a whole new meaning, doesn't it, to the well-worn words of the Apostle Paul when he says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. For me recently, I've embraced a different definition of faith, that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but the opposite of faith is certainty. How many of you have almost felt paralyzed by the uncertainty? The uncertainty about your employment, the uncertainty about what it's going to be like when you go to the pump. Come on now. Am I talking to the right people? The myriad of uncertainties that are there. See, what I want to help you to do here, if possible, in this brief time that we have remaining is to understand that even in that darkness, there is something to be perceived. It was the Apostle Paul who thought, who assumed, that he understood everything. In fact, he had no peers. He had no rivals. Remember the story of him when we're introduced to him in Acts chapter 9? He had a lot of certitude, didn't he? If anybody understood God, Paul did, until he had a head-on collision on the road to Damascus. You know the story, breathing out threatenings, Possessed with the spirit of jihad. Yeah, that's right. The man who gives us two-thirds of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. This man was literally breathing out threatenings. He had the same demeanor and the same uh, disposition of any terrorist alive today that anybody that does not believe like I believe is an infidel and worthy of death. That's why he has warrants. He's going to secure warrants so that he can arrest Christians and have them executed. And when he has this head-on collision with truth, he's blind for three days. He's blind for three days. He's groping around. The man who had been the leader, now he's being led. Hmm. Interesting, right? He finds himself in darkness, and I think the reason why he lost his sight is so that he could gain new insight. You know, the 
sometimes the protracted periods of time where I've been in darkness, I've been in the dark, so to speak. You know, we use that often. I've begun to understand it was so that I could gain new insight. Understanding the way that I see things are not necessarily the way they are. When God called Abram, you know the story. <clears throat> when God called Abram in, uh, Hebrew, uh, in Hebrews 11, it describes his calling in this way. It says, and I'm almost uh, reluctant to even reference it because we've heard it so many times until, you know, we're almost deaf to it. It's, uh, it describes his response to the call of God in this way. It says, he went out not knowing where he was going. We call that faith. He went out not knowing where he was going. But this is something I'd never considered before until just yesterday. So I'm learning this the same time you are. If you already know it, just humor me, okay? He's going not knowing. Every other journey up until we get to our introduction to Abraham initially Abram in Scripture, every other journey was a eastward journey. From the Garden of Eden all the way up to Abram, everybody was traveling east. Everybody was going east toward the rising of the sun or the source of light. But when God calls Abram, which by the way, you probably remember that when God called him, he was in the Ur of Chaldees. This is this ancient city that I don't think that it would be uh, stretching it too much to say that even though it was an ancient city, it was the most advanced city of its time. It was the epicenter of technology. I don't have time to share with you about how advanced this city was, and I want you not just to see that in the context of the Old Testament, but understand that we live in an age of advancement. We live in an age of technology. And so when God calls Abram in that environment, he does not call him further east. He calls him west. I mean, if I had a map here, I could show you the geography. The calling comes to him, and he tells him to go in the opposite direction of the rising of the sun. Counterintuitive, isn't he? He says, I want you to go not where the sun rises, but where the sun sets. Again, all the other previous journeys had been eastward journeys. We don't like it when God calls us or leads us into darkness. I mean, even the calling itself, you remember the story in Genesis, even the calling itself, it doesn't come to him in broad daylight when the sun has Fallen over the horizon, God calls him out of his tent, and he has him to look up at the sky. Remember the promise? And you and your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because I'm going to make your seed like the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven. I mean, that, that's, that really has a glowing tone to it, doesn't it? But I don't think we realize just how 
mystical it was, how mystified he was by it. How can you wrap your mind around that? Maybe what God is calling us into is just that mystical, just that mystifying. Are you guys still with me? The knowledge of the riches that he is speaking of there in verse 7, the treasures of the darkness in this particular, te- particular text are concealed. They're protected. In other words, you don't get this knowledge unless you have special access to it. You're given special access. Uh, let me put it to you this way. There are certain things uh, that anybody in the public can get access to. And it's pretty scary these days, isn't it? I can find out where you live. I can even see online from Google Maps, I can see your house and your cars in your driveway. It's it's a matter of public access. But what he is talking about here is not just something anyone can access. He's talking about access that only comes when you are able to be led into the ambiguity, the things that are absolutely contradictory to what you have previously thought because there is where I'll give you access to the treasures. Even when God makes covenant with Abraham, if we had time, we would go back and read each one of these texts because they have so much texture to them. When he makes covenant with Abraham, I love this story. What does he do? He allows him to go to sleep, but not just to sleep. He allows him to go into a deep sleep in the same way that we see Adam pictured in the creation story, right? He's in a deep sleep. And in the Genesis account, it describes the darkness that fell on that particular scene that was actually horrifying. It was terrifying. And it's in that environment that God makes covenant with himself, not with Abram because he knew that Abram was incapable because of his tendency to be a pathological liar, that he could not even keep the covenant. So God puts him into a coma. (laughs) He puts him into a coma. He puts him into a place where it is darkness that is almost thick. You could feel it. It's horrifying. And it is there that God makes covenant with himself because he could not make covenant with anyone greater than himself, so he swore by himself. I love that. See, he's really waiting on us to wake up from our coma as he did with Abram and to understand that all of this was done before we were even conscious of it. Go back again and look at what he said in Isaiah 45. He said that I am the Lord God of Israel. I called you by name for the sake of my servant Joe. Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. This is something that was already settled. 
I take great encouragement. I hope you do. I take great encouragement in understanding that no matter what might be unfolding, whatever insidious uh, thing that is going on right now at higher levels, you know, that God has already settled the end from the beginning. The first treasure that I want us to, to consider here is understanding, and you guys, it's in your motto, the pursuit of his presence. And I, I, I don't want to critique that. <clears throat> I understand the inference of it. But we really don't have to pursue his presence. I understand what you mean again. I'm I'm not, it probably sounds like I am critiquing it, but I'm not. You don't have to pursue his presence. You have to perceive his presence. Because there's no way for you to not be in his presence. The presence of God is pervasive. It's in everything. It's in everyone. At a molecular level, at an atomic level, everything is held together, according to the book of Hebrews, by the word of his power. There's no way to escape. I love Psalm 139. And this was an epiphany that the psalmist had. I mean, I, I think when he started journaling this without any awareness whatsoever that it would find its way into the greater body of what we call the Scripture or the Psalms, He would say, when I get up, you're aware of it. When I sit down, you're aware of it. You know my thoughts before I ever have them. You know what I'm going to say before I ever say it. And then his imagination zoomed out even more. He said, I, like Zeus, he didn't say Zeus, but I think that's what he was referring to out of Greek mythology. He says, if I grew wings and I flew to the uttermost parts of the sea, you know, maybe people back in those days were flat earth thinkers. They thought if you went to the edge you, uh, of what was known, you'd fall off the end. There's a lot of flat thinkers in church today. They, you know, I mean, they believe that the world is round, but they, their landscape is flat. And if you go to the end, you're going to go off the proverbial deep end. But he says, if I take the wings and go to the uttermost parts of the sea, you're even there. Or if I make my bed in hell, you are there. So what's the issue about his presence? It's always been about your perception, about your awareness. He has always been more aware of you, continually aware of you than you have ever been aware of him. It was Tillich that said, first time I read this, this great thinker, uh, it just stopped me in my tracks. Because again, the first treasure of darkness, I believe, is having an enhanced, high definition and upgrade whatever word you want to use to contemporize it, perception of his presence. I I, I hope hope there's some practicality that you're reaching for here because in the morning, 
after I've had my coffee and after I've had my silent time, my time of contemplation with the Lord, I will turn on the television to make sure, at least to some degree, that I'm aware of what might have happened overnight. And if I allow that to, and it really is doing this, if I allow it to slime me, to vomit on me too much, then I go about the rest of my day unaware of his presence. Does anybody relate to what I'm talking about? But Tillich says this, Paul Tillich, this great thinker, he says, the perceived absence of God's presence is actually evidence of his presence. The focus is on the word perceived. Because I think he understood what Psalm 139 was saying. Your thoughts are just beyond me. I know that every gesture, I never, every idiosyncrasy, every intention, every time I get up, every time I sit down, everything, every thought before it comes into my head, you know it. I think right now, in this time of darkness, we need to understand that it is all not, it's not all the source of what is coming from the usual suspects as much as it is God inviting us into an enhanced understanding of his presence. 1 Kings 8.10, <clears throat> this is, has to do with dedication of the temple. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. Verse 11, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And verse 12 says, then spake Solomon, the Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. He would dwell in the thick darkness. <laughs> You know, whenever I've read that, that story of the dedication of the temple and Solomon standing up, up, up on this um, platform that they had erected for him to give the dedicatory prayer, I think about some super bright cloud. Anybody else? But that's not the cloud that God dwells in. Even though in him is light and there is no darkness, I do think sometimes he wraps himself in dark clouds. Who's in this thick darkness? It's not just us alone, is it? But he's there. Another treasure of the darkness, as I see it, and I'm trying to come to a close here. I don't even see a clock in this room anymore. Did you remove it or did you ever have one? Okay. Okay is the darkness that comes and brings secret deliverances and victories. You remember in Exodus when we have this, uh, this, this vivid description of the crossing of the Red Sea and Pharaoh is in pursuit, in hard pursuit. God leads them. It's always been interesting to me that he leads them into a place topographically that is described as a canyon. 
It has high walls on either side. They cannot be scaled to the right or to the left. He takes these millions of people and he deliberately, intentionally leads them into this canyon that on the other side brings them to the banks of the raging Red Sea and Pharaoh is pushing from behind. So there's, there's pressure from behind and there's pressure on either side. And they don't know yet, though, that the waters are about to break before them. They don't even realize that when they get on the other side that God is going to say something that most of us miss, that Israel is my son. And the reason why he says Israel is my son is because in that particular deliverance that they went through, he has pressed them into this narrow place, almost as if it is a birthing canal. And the water breaks before them and is not then, not until then, that he calls them his son. And the scripture says how dark it was. Read it. How dark it was that night. They had been brought out under the cover of darkness, and now they are being delivered in and through darkness. Am I helping anybody here today? Why are you looking at me like that? Listen, this is where we are right now. This is a birthing we are groaning within ourselves as all of creation is groaning, awaiting the manifestation of the sons of God. And it is painful and it is uncomfortable, but it is not going to an end. It's going to a new day because every new day starts with the closing and going through a old darkness. And it says that Moses held up his rod all night as they passed through And it's so graphically described there in the book of Exodus because for them on the side of the cloud that they were on, it was, even though it was in the night, it was totally lit by the cloud on one side. But on the other side, where Pharaoh was, it was darkness. You see the contrast. You see the tension, don't you? Yeah, I mean, we could go on and on and on here. Just one more. When Jacob is wrestling, since we're talking about the presence of God, when Jacob is wrestling at night, somewhere between the setting of the sun and the dawn of a new day, he's wrestling with God, and he'd been living in a nightmare. His whole life was dysfunctional. If you know anything about the story of Jacob, even though he had been blessed materially, his life was a shambles relationally. Everything was incredibly dysfunctional. And it was in the night that God gives him a dream that delivers him from the nightmare of his life. There's where we have this ladder, such beautiful imagery, this ladder that extends from the earth to heaven, angels ascending and descending. We know later that this would be Jesus, but it happened in a dark context, didn't it? It happened in a dark context. Isaiah 60 makes it very clear, doesn't it, as I read a few moments ago, 
that there was coming a time, and I believe that what Isaiah 60 was talking about was not necessarily our time, even though truth is timeless. It was not talking about our time. It was talking about another time. It was talking about a time that described the coming of Jesus himself because it was dark then. And that's where he sets up the ladder. That ladder is Jesus, the ability to ascend and descend out of this realm of hopelessness and uncertainty. I I mean, I recognize that uh, there are so many people in this room that, uh, you know, when you look at the apparent direction what things, what, what might happen, what could happen, that it, uh, it can very easily seize you, paralyze you. If there's anything I've been attempting to do here in these last few minutes is help you to understand that God, as we've heard it said so many times, but it still is is still as powerful and as effective now as it's ever been. It seems that God always does his best work in the dark. The story, all of this story of the human race started in the beginning. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved. Maybe things aren't dark enough yet. <laughs> yeah. Some of you say, I, I, I'm not sure I can say amen to that, right? Maybe things aren't quite dark enough yet. For God to begin to move in, in the way that he did in that first creation, I mean, you know I'm preaching to the choir when I say some of these things because I understand how well you're taught. You know, the Scripture does not teach us or give us the promise of His giving us all new things, but making all things new. And maybe like Abram, the father of our faith, we are walking away from what it appears to be the rising of the sun, We're not walking east, we're walking west into increased and intensified darkness, but what we don't understand, that what goes around comes around. And the further that we walk into it, we realize it is not walking into defeat. It is not walking into something dismal or depressing. It is walking to the dawn of something new. Won't you stand? Lord, I just believe this morning for people in this room that are facing uh, some pretty threatening situations. that have abdicated their trust to a system. And Lord, you don't judge them in that. 
That's just not how you are. Inside, they are so troubled, so agitated over what seems to be coming. And Lord, I, I, I want, if you could, if you would, and I know you will, if you can just do something in the deepest core of who they are and let them understand that no matter how much uncertainty there seems to be, that our hope is the one who is, is, our hope is in the one who is the source of all hope. It's not what I'm hoping for, but who I'm hoping in. Yes, Lord. For those, Lord, who uh, have suffered such great loss and there seems to be imminent loss, I ask that you'd help, help them to know. Come alongside of them as you promised you would. Help them to understand. Help them to accept the fact that your grace, your mercy is forever following them. Like David who said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Surely, surely. <laughs> this is what I can be sure of. Surely goodness and mercy are following me all the days of my life. Help them to see the table that you're preparing before them in the very presence of their enemies. Help them, Lord, to gain perspective and awareness, to know that you are pursuing them You've always been in pursuit of us. Sometimes it feels like we're pursuing you, but really you're pursuing us. Lord, the other day when I was reading in the Talmud about how, and this is not in our Bible, but so <laughs> sometimes it's a stretch. But you said every blade of grass has an angel hovering over it saying, grow, grow, grow. If you're that attentive to even a blade of grass, and even Jesus said, Jesus said, why do you take thought? Why do you allow yourself to be par paralyzed by the paralysis of analysis. Why do you do that? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They do not toil or spin. The birds of the air. Lord, let us, let us come back into that rhythm of grace and to know that even in the darkness, you know, like you said in Matthew 4, that they that sat in darkness saw a great light. 
We ask for that in the name of Jesus. For people here that are in darkness financially, people that are in darkness, some of them are dealing with it mentally, Lord. Some of them, I understand what it's like. I understand what it's like to be assaulted, to, for my mind and emotions to be assaulted with, salt, with thoughts of death and self-loathing. I pray for those, Lord. I pray for every person in this room who has experienced night terrors and panic attacks. If that's you, if, you have, if you've been waking up in the middle of the night totally terrified, I, I'm asking right now, Lord, that you would come to that person wherever they're standing at this very moment and help them to understand that there's, one pro- there's so many promises that you've made to us, but probably the greatest is that you would never leave or forsake us. You would never leave or forsake us. Never. Never. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I thank you that there is going to be an uncovering, a discovering, and a recovering of the treasures of the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. (laughs) I know we've heard this probably in liturgical churches and we kind of, you know, roll our eyes at it, but I believe in the power of Deuteronomy 6. The Lord bless you. If you don't want it, let somebody beside of you get it, all right? I am fully authorized to do what I'm doing right now because I'm one of his priests, as you are. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you forevermore. Amen. Thank you so much. RandallWorleyMinistries.com. Can you put that in back there, David? Guys, go visit, uh, go visit Randall's page. Um, it's full of resources. And uh, did you enjoy what he brought for us today? Oh man. Oh man. Not afraid of darkness. We perceive that he's there. Thank you for that. Um, can we clear out one of these baskets, please? We wanna, we're going to bless Randall. We, all, we always want to do that, but I want to give you the opportunity, if you'd like, to sow into Randall's ministry. Um, I actually didn't even know. I knew about the uh, Elizabeth and I get a chance to come down, but uh, obviously those things cost money, and so um, I didn't even know you guys were trying to underwrite that. I, I didn't know that. You probably told me, and it somehow passed through my brain. But um, they do things like this all the time. I know we, we've spoken at large over the phone about some of the times that he's preached in, you know, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000-member 2, churches. And, and I don't want to uncover anything, but 
and sometimes he gets enough money to get gas to get back home. He came from Myrtle Beach, by the way, and uh, that's where he lives now with his beautiful wife, Penny, and his, his sons serve in, uh, two of his sons are serving in worship right now, I know of, and his other son has a business down at the, the coast, but if you want to take part in, in blessing Randall, what happened to the baskets? I thought I just saw baskets up here. Oh, it's there. Okay. Um, if you, Everything that comes in this, we're going to add to whatever we give to Randall. But if you want to give to him specifically, you can write a check to the church, and we'll give him one check. Uh, whatever comes in now will go to him. Or you can visit his website. Um, I know Steve had to slip out. Anita wasn't feeling well. Uh, but is David back there? Throw up the, they're working on Throw up the website so they can go there. You can, you can connect with him there as well. Um, please be respectful of his time. Obviously, he's not one of those where he just wants to sneak out and not say hey anybody. But if you want to say something, you know, take 30 seconds or a minute or so and say hello. There's 100 people here. And so we can maybe get him something to eat and get him back on the road. He didn't know I was going to say that and ask me to say it, but I say it. Um, so be mindful of his time. If you want to connect later, go to his website. You can connect that way. Um, thanks for coming. You know we love you. Um, so the younger youth... Um, the middle school youth, you, those guys are going to a corn maze. Are they leaving right after church? I thought so. Leaving right after church. Uh, we got the van all cleaned up and fueled up and ready to go. So um, do we know? Do we have a count for how many are going? Uh, about, uh, about 10 that are going. So, and it's, what, $20? So if your kids are going, just make sure they've got money. They're just going to stay in here in the sanctuary. They'll meet, and they're going to go to the corn maze. And then what time do you anticipate being back? They will text, all parents will be texted uh, on, when they're on the way back, plan for somewhere around 7 to come back and pick up your children. Um, uh, they, they cannot stay here. <laughs> yeah, they would be delivered if they had to be. So anyways, God bless you all. Thank you so much for coming. We'll see you next. We're having a...